This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 64th edition of Sports and Stuff on RainierAvenueRadio.world. Today I have two very special guests, two old friends, Seattle area attorneys Mark Lamb and Aaron Wolf. We're going to have a show today about just some fun sports law topics. Well, they may not all be that fun, but they're interesting topics. So I can't think of uh, two better guys to have on on this. Before I go further with this discussion with Aaron Wolf and Mark Lamb, I want to recognize my engineer today. Uh, James Gurd. James does a lot at the Rainier Avenue Radio. He also is the host of the After Dark show here. He's sort of a multi-purpose utility guy here. James does good work. A lot of good things going on at RainierAvenueRadio.world. We have a sports department with multiple shows hosted by Rick Dupree, Granville Emerson, Renat Laurent host a show. Mazvita Marari hosts the Seattle Sports Weekly show. Uh, Pat McCarthy, Mazvita co-host a show. Mark Bryant has a good fitness-based show. Juan Cotto has a show. We have entertainment shows. We have political shows, lifestyle shows. So definitely go to RainierAvenueRadio.world. Uh, my show, Sports and Stuff, has been going on now for a little over two and a half years. You can listen to all my interviews on Mixcloud and my website, PLSLawOffices.com. Well, both of you, as I mentioned earlier, have been friends for many, many years. Both are dads raising kids. They both have some perspectives on sports and sports law issues. Mark Lamb is a Duke University and UCLA law grad, Seattle native. Mark now lives and works in Bothell, Washington. He served in the Bothell City Council for many years. Aaron Wolf is a Mercer Island native. Uh, Aaron practices in predominantly criminal defense. He's worked on some civil litigation issues. Mark, as an attorney, has worked primarily in election law, civil litigation. And Mark's handled a few criminal cases over the years as well. Just a handful. A handful. Uh, Aaron is a graduate of Emory University in Saudi Law School, my alma mater. Uh, Aaron worked as a criminal prosecutor for many years. And like I mentioned a minute ago, he's been a criminal defense lawyer for many, many years. Both these gentlemen, I want to mention, were involved in the I-93 Deal is a Deal initiative back in 2007, which was an effort to try to lock the city of Seattle in to enforce the Sonics lease through 2010. Well, we'll talk about uh, I-93 for a minute or two, but uh, gentlemen, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Thanks for having us, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having us, Paul. It's great to be with you and great to be with Aaron. Absolutely. Fun fun, fun little Thanksgiving Eve discussion here. We'll record it. We'll, it'll be announced next week. So in about 2007, during the Sonics relocation battle, Aaron Wolf, Wolf over here came up with the idea to prevent the city of Seattle from accepting an early buyout of the Sonics lease. And Mark ended up writing the initiative I-93. It was dubbed a deal as a deal. little history is after the initiative was filed, the city of Seattle, their, the council agreed to through a resolution stating they would enforce the lease and they didn't want the Sonics to leave before 2010. We know the history. That ended up not happening. But I got a question for both of you. And if that initiative went forward and if it passed, I'll let Mark or Aaron go first, whichever one of you wants to go first. Do you guys think that that could have um, resulted in a different outcome of the Sonics relocation? You want to go first, Mark? Sure. I mean, I, I think it was – there's a, a real possibility that it could have. And I think that the the lease was the one kind of hammer that the city had to keep the Sonics um, in Seattle. And I think that by not if, – if they had stuck to a specific performance and if that if that had gone into effect, I think there is a real chance that they would have been able to – uh, to enforce that and to and to keep the uh, to keep the lease in place, I think that was really the one 
ability that the city of Seattle had. As you know, it, it ultimately went a different direction, had uh, a negotiated settlement whereby they said, well, the legislature has a certain amount of time to, to do this. That did not end up retaining the Sonics. And so I think in some in some ways there were a lot of people who were uh, – counseling compromise, including a lot of people in the Seattle City Council, because they felt like that was the better part of wisdom at the time to not antagonize the new owners and to try to give them a field to run with to to secure the team. But I think, you know, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, the outcome certainly couldn't have been worse than what happened. So, uh, yeah. And I you wrote that off. initiative, Mark. Aaron came up with the idea and you wrote the initiative. The former city attorney, Tom Carr, told me he did not think that initiative could be enforced. He thought the city of Seattle could still accept a buyout if they wanted to, even if the initiative passed. What's your take on what Tom Carr shared with me? Well, yeah, the former city attorney, Correct, uh, former t- city. Tom Tom Carr, uh, had, I think, a different – I think he and I have a different view of sort of the citizen's role in the, leg- in the uh, legislative initiative process. And I think that there are certain areas that citizens aren't allowed to impede into. Um, but I think when you draft an initiative that is narrow and it is sort of single-focused in purpose and it isn't getting into the bureaucracy of the city of sort of how they run the day-to-day operations, but rather is narrowly focused on a single issue of public policy, which I would argue, I mean, clearly the Sonics were something that was of great public interest to a lot of people. I would respectfully disagree with them. I think that's precisely the area of citizen uh, legislating that uh, both the city of Seattle and, and more broadly speaking, the state of Washington. Interesting take. And Mark is an election law attorney. Aaron Pine in here. Tell us about I-93. You came up with the idea. Do you think it could have been something that could have changed the result of the whole relocation battle if that initiative passed? That's a really good question, Paul. Um, you know, looking back, uh, when we were involved in the Save Our Sonics effort, we were looking for any type of avenue in which we can slow down the process, if you will. Clay Bennett and his co-owners really wanted to get the team out of here, and any type of additional litigation could have easily delayed everything, delayed the move. And ultimately, looking back, as an armchair quarterback, if the city hadn't settled and they were forced to stay here, they probably would. the Sonics would still probably be here in Seattle. I think that that initiative was an opportunity for the the citizens of Seattle to mandate to the city that they didn't want to take a settlement. And we didn't – the elected officials of Seattle were not on our side in keeping the Sonics in Seattle. You both gave really good answers. Now, one little piece of history from that whole I-93 initiative, which I think you guys in the Sabre Sonics people can wear with a little badge of honor, is apparently Clay Bennett wrote an email learning about I-93 where he wrote – uh, Stern needs to get us out of Dodge. Wow, <laughs> so, that's, that's so, so inspiring anyhow. fear and claim. Yeah, so I think that, I think the Oklahoma owners had some concerns about about uh, that initiative that you two worked on. Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio World, having a great discussion about sports related issues and sports law with Mark Lamb, a, a Bothell attorney, and Aaron Wolf, a Seattle attorney. Okay, I'm going to bring up something that is a great topic to start an argument at a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it, it, Colin Kaepernick is somebody where everybody has an opinion on Colin Kaepernick with his decision to kneel. It's really split the country in many ways. And like I said, it's a great way to start an argument at a, at a, at a family holiday dinner. Um, Kaepernick, as we know, reached a confidential settlement in early 2019 with the NFL and concerned to his collusion claim. He's back in the news with his unprecedented league-hosted workout for an individual player. Now, i got a question for you guys. I, we don't know the terms of the confidential settlement that he worked out in NFL. But one thing that's confusing me, and I want you two guys to, to pine in here, if there's already a settlement that Kaepernick had with NFL, 
why are why does it seem like there's so much relitigation now over his tryout and the waiver? Were these issues not maybe not resolved earlier? Mark, you go first, and Aaron, why don't you pine in here? I'm just a little confused why why we're kind of why there's so much almost relitigation of a case that settled apparently. Yeah, I mean, and I think it probably deals with the terms of what was settled. I mean, I think that would deal with his release, uh, you know, from the NFL or his inability to uh, continue playing in the NFL at the time and, and sort of how uh, Colin Kaepernick felt like he was treated. I mean, my, my sense of that is that the, it may actually there may be terms that are within the uh, confidential settlement that we're not privy to that were guiding why the NFL took the position point. that it did. I mean, I, I don't know that because obviously it's confidential. I do think, I mean, the sense that I get with that just globally speaking is that there are times, and I know you guys have probably experienced this as attorneys, where the parties aren't aren't in, aren't in alignment and they're not ready to settle. And so sometimes an issue in this case, like a, a waiver to, you know, a liability waiver to work out in a facility or work out for teams becomes the excuse to sort of, because you're not in substantive agreement and there may be bad blood. I mean, clearly, there clearly is some, yeah, some, tension. some significant bad blood. And so, I mean, I would, I don't know. I mean, I, I listened to Stephen A. Smith when he was like, I think Kaepernick doesn't want to play and that's why he's doing it. I don't necessarily um, accept that narrative, but I think there is much more going on behind the scenes. I, I don't necessarily believe that what's going on under the surface, I think is much more revealing of what the actual situation is. I don't, I don't think that the dispute was literally like they couldn't come to terms on a waiver and that's why Colin Kaepernick's not playing in the NFL. Jump in here, Aaron. Give us some perspectives that you have on this whole recent Colin Kaepernick uh, flare-up. Well, it's a, obviously a really complicated uh, issue, and it's very divisive, uh, Kaepernick, and everything that's been surrounding it. Um, as Mark alluded to, the, the excuse, the scapegoat as to why it went from the Atlanta training facility to a high school outside of uh, Atlanta was because of issues regarding liability uh, waivers and things like that. But there's obviously multiple layers behind that. And um, neither Mark or I are privy to what those layers are. But, you know, I think when they initiated this and uh, Goodell uh, discussed or, or announced that this was going to happen, it appeared as if it was a PR stunt to show that the the NFL has no ill ill will towards Colin, um, but it also a story also accounted that the Kaepernick team only had two hours to agree to the terms. And it I didn't all, know that. Interesting. I read that just today. So it's truly a complicated uh, issue. I do believe there were a few teams that were present uh, for that modified tryout, if you will. And Kaepernick did give a, a statement that he's been trying to play for the past three years. You know, one th- more thing I want to throw in here. Um, on this issue is I've, I've worked on a few employment law cases over the years, not a, not a ton, but I've had a few of them. Many employment law cases involve severance agreements where it's basically the aggrieved employee is told by the employer, here's some money. We don't ever want to see you again. You're not going to be employed anymore, but here's 800 grand, a couple million dollars, whatever. I, I assume that Colin Kaepernick in the NFL did not have any kind of severance agreement. I'll go ahead and pine in there, you guys. We haven't would, seen the agreement. I would actually but, assume the opposite. I, mean, really? I think they would have had some. But, I mean, you're right. In a lot of in a lot of severance agreements, I remember one case in particular where that was a, a real sticking point for the employer was, like, you can never come back and right. work at this location again because sometimes you might have an intra – you know, fight or something like that, where one party doesn't want the other party reemerging if they're displaced. In this case, I, I tend to think that it is, you know, I mean, there, in, a, in a way right now, I mean, Colin Kaepernick's story is he wanted to play in the NFL. He was punished for his belief. 
to be honest with you, I mean, not to be mercenary about it, but I mean, there's a certain value to him in that story of, you know, from Nike and from other things like that, of where his his actions on, on principle led him to sacrifice a career in the NFL. That's sort of his narrative. I think if he tries out for a team and is unsuccessful or tries out for a team and is sort of relegated to a second or third string role, I, I don't think that really supports that narrative. And I don't know that most teams, given salary cap and other issues like that, would be willing to put the kind of money out there for someone who hasn't played in three years to make it worth his while to test that. And that, that actually is, I think, a, a distinct possibility in the Kaepernick case. I may have not articulated my earlier point very well, my point a minute ago. I, I was trying to articulate that if he is trying out for teams right now, or if teams are even looking at him, there must not be a traditional severance separation agreement. That, yeah, I don't think, I clearly, saying. I don't think there's an, there was a provision that said he couldn't return to the NFL. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and I think he probably would have balked at that at the time um, had it had it been, been part of it, yeah. confidential settlement. Aaron, anything else to add on the Kaepernick thing? Well, I would agree. There clearly was no um, settlement as far as precluding or prohibiting Colin from future play in the NFL. Um, unfortunately, it's such a divisive issue, and so many people um, have so many different opinions, and it, 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 it is really one to be discussed and conflicting points by every, every party. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because there have been some NFL teams that have lost some of their star quarterbacks. There have been exp- uh, rumors that certain teams are interested. Whether or not they'll ever be in the league, only time will tell. And this, that perspective comes from a prominent Seahawks season. Take a hold of Aaron Wolf, too. So. I am a diehard right. Seahawks That's fan, great. absolutely. Paul Schneiderman again on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio.World, talking some sports law with two very good attorneys, Mark Lamb and Aaron Wolf. Okay, I want to move to another NFL topic, the Miles Garrett melee, the fight that occurred between the uh, Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, a couple weeks ago. And my first question is for Aaron. I want Mark to, to, to uh, jump in here as well. What do you think, Aaron, in general about the idea of police and prosecutors getting involved in on in on the field pro sports violence? And there are cases. There are some NHL, NHL cases. NHL, exactly. And there was a case of a Jose Offerman, I guess a minor league pitcher, who threw a bat at a pitcher or something. But anyway, what, what's your general take on, on law enforcement getting involved in, in pro sports fights? That's a really good question, Paul. It, that That's tough. It's tough for law enforcement to get involved. I, I, I read some articles here, and by definition, what Miles uh, did there is an assault. I mean, the, and it's not a reasonable inference or incidental contact, uh, a contact when he took the uh, helmet off of uh, the quarterback, uh, Rudolph, and then smashed him in the head with it. That By definition, that's an assault. But they've already said the Cleveland police are not investigating uh, nor uh, is the prosecutor's office planning on prosecuting. Obviously, the league has suspended him indefinitely, uh, clearly through the end of the year. Um, it's tough because when you watch that, it is, uh, by layman's terms, just looking at it, it seems very egregious. Uh, there have been comments. There might have been some slurs that were made. The, it's unclear here. But it is really difficult for um, in for law enforcement or police or any type of criminal prosecution to occur. It's happened before. I just don't envision it happening in this in this situation for this incident. And what will be interesting is to see how this all plays out because Cleveland is going to be playing in Pittsburgh this Sunday. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, I, it's, it's very fascinating to hear a career cr- criminal defense lawyer perspective on that. Mark, uh, jump in here a little bit on this whole uh, uh, Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph uh, episode. 
that game is definitely going to be some must see TV when it come when it comes back. For sure, I think it's going to be intense. No, I mean, I, I think the the challenge is that they're probably. I always try and think about it in a case in a situation like that. Like, I think what was observed that the police and the prosecutor are making the right decision. I think you're if you interfere in a case like that, there are many times on almost in every almost every NFL game where somebody will shove somebody else or or push someone else in the face. That would clearly be an assault, as, as Aaron pointed out correctly, uh, outside of the context of the game. I think what's interesting to me is to think about, like, what if the situation had been different? I mean, what if he had seriously injured him? What if he was not able to continue playing? What would be the legal implications then? Probably both civil and potentially criminal, because he, uh, in a way, both of them were lucky in that you, when you take a football helmet and you smack somebody in the head, uh, as strong as he is and as hard as he hit him, it could have been much, much worse. And I think it's kind of a, a warning. I think what the NFL did was sort of say, hey, we're going to call timeout. We're going to remove him from the league for the rest of the season and kind of take a deep breath. But uh, as a league and as a uh, as a country that loves NFL football, I think we really lucked out that that did not end up uh, in a much more serious situation. Could have been a lot worse. But there is a perspective, which I think on the video – there has merit to it. There's a perspective that Miles Garrett's getting a little bit of a raw deal that Rudolph apparently made contact with him first. Based on what I watched in the video, there were three players, including Rudolph, that were on um, Garrett when he was alone on the field at one time with three opposing players. Is Miles Garrett, Mark, and then I want Aaron to jump in here, getting a little bit of a raw deal? So I think it's clear, as with most altercations in, in life and, and in the law, that there was blame to go around, that it was not something – this was not an unprovoked attack. He didn't take off his – you know, the helmet at, while he was walking off from the sideline and cold cock him. This was people who were engaged in a confrontation. Um, did he escalate that confrontation to a level that was inappropriate and unacceptable? I, th- I think so. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that uh, Garrett was – was the lone aggressor or the only person who had fault in that in that altercation? What's your take? An indefinite ban on Garrett? Does that go too far? What's your take? I think an indefinite ban goes too far. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do think through the end of the season is appropriate. There are no clean hands here. But what he did when he removed the helmet and then struck him with it, I would say, is the most egregious act. Um, and ultimately... Um, the, the, through the rest of the season, I think is is a warranted warrants, warranted suspension. You don't see what Garrett did. I'm playing a little 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 um, devil's advocate here. Do you don't see it as like kind of a quasi self defense situation at all? Well, uh, reasonable use of force. Uh, was it necessary to take the helmet off him and then attempt to strike him in the head? I don't think so. When you had other players involved, I don't think he was fearing for his safety at that time. I think anger. And the passion is what overtook him at that time. Great perspectives. You guys have knocked out of the park. Paul Schneider, you're going to host of sports and stuff on RainierAvenueRadio.world with my engineer today, James Gerd, and attorneys Aaron Wolf and Mark Lamb. we got about, what, 10 minutes, James? Yeah, about 10 minutes. Okay, a little less than 10. Okay, so um, I want to kind of move on this a little more quickly. There are a couple more subjects I want to get into more. But the Supreme Court in May of 2018, U.S. Supreme Court made a decision, a 7-2 decision, where they struck down the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act. They wrote it was unconstitutional, part of a New Jersey challenge. Essentially, states have more discretion to regulate and legalize sports betting. And interestingly, marijuana issues have some have a federal-state confrontation at times. Uh, Mark, what do you think of the ruling really quickly? And I want to get Aaron's take on this uh, major sports gambling ruling, the Supreme Court uh, 
made last year. Yeah, so I've, I'm a big believer in in states having the right to uh, determine uh, matters that are closest to them. I think the decisions in government that are made closest to the people tend to be the decisions that are right. I think there are states that will opt to go uh, all in, uh, to use a, a betting term, on uh, sports gambling. And I think there are others that will, will likely take a pass. Uh, but I think that the implications of that, I, I've heard a lot of the arguments uh, against the ruling, to me, did, seemed less substantive and more uh, sort of policy-oriented, that they were uh, saying, well, you know, this, this is going to lead to a proliferation of sports gambling. The reality is, like, Americans love to bet on sports. Uh, sports gambling is a huge uh, industry. It's something that many, many people choose to participate in in this country. It's a voluntary activity. Nobody's forced or compelled to engage in sports betting. And I think having uh, states have the ability to say, yeah, that's something we'd like to have as part of our community um, or not is something that ultimately is for the legislature and for the elected representatives and for ultimately the people of each state to decide not to have one size fits all in our country. Sounds like an opinion written by Chief Justice Lamb. Ah, Aaron, what's your take on that Supreme Court decision where the states aren't given more discretion to participate in sports gambling? Well, sports gambling is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And uh, I echo Mark in the sense that states should have the right to decide whether or not to legalize it and ultimately to tax it. Currently, if a person wants to lay a bet and they do it illegally, usually it's through a bookie, and their bookie always makes a profit in this case. Why not afford the states the opportunity to make profit, just like in the context of lotteries that many states have? Um, As a person who does on occasion enjoy sports wagering, legalized that is. That's right. Yeah, of course. In a state called Nevada. Absolutely, Paul. Um, That ultimately uh, it is – it is one activity that millions of Americans enjoy doing. So I think it's absolutely uh, uh, the right decision here and an opportunity for more income for the states that do decide to legalize it. And, and I would echo uh, what Aaron just said. I've litigated against the state of Washington many times, and, and at, at times they have, in fact, acted like an extremely aggressive bookie. That, that <laughs> is a, an interesting analogy. Paul Schneider, get on sports and stuff with uh, on Rainier Avenue Radio with Mark Lamb, Aaron Wolf. Well, I wish we had more time because we've got a couple minutes left. I want to hit a few more subjects. Okay, there was a major NCAA case that came down this year, uh, Alston versus NCAA, in the courtroom of U.S. District Judge Claudia Wilkin. This is the Ninth Circuit. It was an interesting decision. Um, The plaintiffs prevailed, but the NCAA is still able to retain a substantial amount of discretion over student-athlete compensation. In some, the NCAA is no longer allowed to limit education-related benefits for student-athletes, but the NCAA still has a lot of discretion, and they also can define the term related education. I know that's a mouthful, like a lot of legal decisions are. Um, Antitrust case, I I guess... The, the biggest thing I got out of this case, and I want to know if you guys agree, is that um, schools, the NCAA can no longer cap um, the educational parts of scholarships. And is this ruling a sign of something bigger to come down the road? Could, could there eventually be just complete college Hey, go ahead. I know I'm asking a couple questions within a question, Mark and Aaron, but go ahead and just give me your thoughts, whether this is just a sign of some bigger rulings to come, maybe. 
You know, I think I think it's a fundamental a foundation of our country and of sort of labor and economics that people should not have their either their likeness or their labor taken without uh, compensation. And I think that there, it's without question that there are many athletic programs, uh, college athletic programs that have made an enormous amount of money by using uh, by using the likeness and by using the labor of uh, student athletes and have kind of, I would say, chosen to prosecute uh, individual in air quotes, violations of their policies in a way that really hasn't been fair and has oftentimes, I think, targeted communities of of color and lower income uh, people in a way that's not that isn't right. I, I think people, student athletes who are generating revenue for their school should have the opportunity to participate in that revenue. I also think that other athletes in sports that aren't necessarily as uh, revenue uh, producing, like like golf or tennis, you know, those those students by this ruling would have the opportunity to uh, teach lessons and to have an opportunity to, to get income outside of that. Uh, college athletics is a really special place, but I think that uh, we can make room in this country for, for some kind of a compensation. And I think, frankly, a lot of schools already engage in that and a lot of boosters already engage in that. And this would be an opportunity to cast some sunshine on that practice. Aaron, what do you think of this legal decision in some where the NCAA is no longer allowed to limit education-related benefits for student-athletes? I totally agree with it in the context, just as Mark said, um, student sports, student athletics is, uh, is huge profits for each university. Um, and an individual who is playing at a collegiate level clearly has a, a gift or a talent uh, that ultimately they should be afforded the opportunity not to – well, to 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 be able to have a unlimited education, if you will, and the opportunity to derive some form of income – from their, the benefit they're providing the university through their um, exemplary play. Another, go ahead. Mark. I was going to say also, yeah. I mean, I think this may have the have uh, the potential down the road of ending the phenomenon of one and done if people have an opportunity to, to keep more of what they uh, participate in making and that where people just play for a year and then go to the NBA or NFL. Yeah. Well, on a personal note, on a pure policy level, I like it now that, that – the NCAA doesn't quite have the latitude they used to have on mm-hmm. some of these uh, questions, and, and I think it's good that, that when you're limiting educational benefits to athletes, that creates all sorts of other problems. Um, another issue going on, which is related to the, the NCAA case that was decided by U.S. District Judge in, in California, I'm sure the Ninth Circuit's going to take it up soon, is that the whole college pay issue. And there is a state representative in Washington State, Drew Stokesbury, who is sponsoring a bill allowing college athletes to be compensated for anything up to fair market value of services and retain an agent. Uh, Mark, you know state politics real well. What do you think of legislation? you think it can pass? And Aaron, I'm going to get your opinion on it as well. I think it's a good move. I know Drew very well. I like him. He was actually he used to be a paralegal for me uh, at my law firm. He's I a fantastic guy. And I think he's right on in this issue. I think that people, again, it goes to the idea of a fair – uh, a fair use. Um, there's some colleges who aren't generating revenue from it, and that's that's okay. I mean, they're not going to be implicated by this. But I think that people who have, uh, who are who are risking their safety and who are putting their talents for the benefits of an institution, have a right to be compensated for it. It's kind of an issue. You can get people on the left and right kind of uniting on that. It's, it's interesting. Like a minute left here, and I want to get your take on this bill that is being sponsored in the Washington State Legislature to allow college athletes to be paid. I agree with it absolutely, unequivocally. What okay. one thing that that it will be complicated if there is college pay for student athletes is the whole Title IX issues and all that. It could get pretty complicated. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, potentially. Um, I thought you were going to say the whole IRS issue of having to pay taxes <laughs> on the income, but but yeah, that that would be a complication. 
What do you think, Aaron? Could the Title IX issues, I mean, are rowers going to be paid the same as, as star football players? How are we going to handle all that? Or how would they simply handle all that? That would be a very, very difficult decision, and there were multi-layers of conversation as to what each player and their sport they're entitled to. You would think that they should be entitled equally, but obviously different sports generate different forms of income. You guys were absolutely excellent today. Thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff on RainierAvenueReal.world. Mark Lamb and Aaron Wolf. What, what a great discussion. I hope to have you guys back one day. We can hit on this, uh, some of these subjects again in the near future. But I really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks so much for having us, Paul. Yes, thanks, Paul, and happy Thanksgiving. You too. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks, guys.